one of the things that, you know, made me start thinking a lot about this book before I wrote it was this sense of feminism as something you kind of get as like a, like a badge or a byproduct of your consumption of pop culture. One of the questions that I get asked a lot are variations like, are variations on a question like, uh, you know, can I do X and still be a feminist? Or what if I consider myself a feminist, but I still like Y? So to me, that's really interesting because it really is thinking about feminism as, as this kind of like static metric of quality rather than as something that is like a living, uh, evolving, ongoing, you know, ethic of living your life. Hello, everyone. Welcome to 15 Minutes, a podcast about fame, episode 13. I'm Jamie Berger. Andy Zeisler co-founded Bitch Magazine in 1996. It's grown into Bitch Media, a feminism meets pop culture independent media conglomerate. Her book, We Were Feminists Once, from Riot Girl to Cover Girl, The Buying and Selling of a Political Movement, is a detailed history of feminism in media and culture, and a takedown of the easy and breezy way celebrities and fan culture and products are taking on the term feminist, even to the extent that boys all over are wearing this-is-what-a-feminist-looks-like t-shirts for street cred with the ladies. Zeisler argues that while there's good to this, it's also just too easy, too ignorant of history and a capitalist co-optation of a century-plus-old social and political movement into what she and others are calling marketplace feminism. Her article, The Bitch America Needs, in support of Hillary Clinton for president, appeared in the New York Times last Saturday, September 10th, 2016. Vanity insists that I tell you that I was getting over a nasty summer head cold when we spoke Skype to cell phone at the end of August. Hello. Hello. Hello, Andy Zeisler. Hi. Jamie, hi. It's great to actually speak to you. I've read you and followed you and found lots of great other things through you for a long time. Yeah, cool. Um, I've been enjoying the podcast for sure. Oh, you've you've listened. I, I never believe anybody's I listening. Have. That's great. Yeah. I mean, it, it's funny because, like, you know, apart from John Hodgman, I'm not really familiar with any of the the subjects. But it's been it's been cool. Well, coming up are, are a couple you may know a little. Um, well, a friend of mine who's an author who lives in your town is actually named the same as a person who reviewed your book, Sarah Jaffe, but without the H. Oh, yeah. Uh, yep. Sarah, yep. Sarah there and I, are like three Sarah Jaffe's. 
in the world. Yeah, there's like, a singer. Oh, is as this well. one? Is this one a? Yeah, there's a singer. At, yeah, it's it's confusing. This is a fiction writer, and she wrote. Okay, yeah, she wrote a great, I know who I know who that is. Yeah, uh, and uh, yeah, there is a singer who I learned about when researching my friend Sarah Jaffe recently. <laughs> I actually have a plan to call a Jamie Berger who is vaguely famous in London for running a barbecue place to talk about being Jamie Berger's. <laughs> we'll see how that works out. Um, That's really funny. Yeah, we'll see. It may be funny. It may not. I, as I, I don't know if I, if I wrote this to you or not, but there's so much for me that I'd love to, to go into that isn't related to fame. So I'm going to start off with a, a question that, I mean, that is related to celebrity, but not to fame per se. But okay. I'm going to start with something, unless you have something you wanted to start with. Oh, no. no okay. Go ahead. Um, a question that I've asked a couple people that, that kind of got the ball rolling in this area well is, so you've had a big book this year. What reviews most pleased and most rankled you, unless that is something you don't want to, you know. Right. Well, I mean, and I'm I'm sure you've heard this before. It's like you can get like 20 glowing reviews, but the one that's going to stick with you is a review where there was like a sentence that was snarky or that you felt was like undermining mm -hmm. or like, you know, just really didn't get your point. And so, yeah, certainly um, – yeah, I think uh I mean I think my favorite review which which wasn't it was it was less of a review than a um you know a sort of uh I guess uh think piece or op-ed was was by my friend Sarah Jaffe in the New Republic. Yeah, I thought that was great. Yeah. Yeah, I mean uh, you know this is something that we've sort of shared thoughts on over the years. She has always been on the more sort of hardcore labor focused Marxist side of things. And she actually has a great new book called necessary trouble. And it's, it, it deals with a lot of stuff about, you know, sort of neoliberalism and culture, but you know, it was one of, it was one of the very first reviews and I was like, thank God <laughs> it's by someone who gets it. So, yeah, I mean, I was really, I was really pleased by that. It's always, I guess it's always nice, especially uh, especially as a feminist and especially as a feminist who mostly writes about pop culture, to feel <laughs> to feel taken seriously, to mm -hmm. like have your work accorded like a level of, I don't know, validation by, you know, people who I consider sort of more serious slash rigorous thinkers. So that was definitely that was definitely a good one. Especially because you're you're taking a tough tack against you know at pop culture, which you also clearly love, and someone could easily take it as one sided. Yeah, and that was something I thought about a lot, you know, during the writing of the book. Was sort of like I I really want to get across the fact that you know when you love stuff, you want it to be better. It's not necessarily uh, you know, either kill your television or, you know, put your television on a pedestal sort of situation. <laughs> yeah. And again, I feel, you know, I feel really lucky. I feel that a lot of the, for most of the reviews of the book, uh, really seem to get that. The one that sort of wrinkled was so, and I feel like a complete dick even complaining because <laughs> my, the book was reviewed twice in the New Yorker, you know, once in the Sunday book review and once in like a, uh, daily. Yeah. The times. 
yeah, the New York Times. So, like, why, like, I, I, even, the fact that I'm even complaining is just ridiculous. But the second review was so weird because um, it, there were, like, some things that really contradicted themselves. Like, the writer, who I, who I like, um, Jennifer Senior, she wrote a really great book called, what was it, All Play. I don't remember. It was about parenting, though, and it, it, it was really about sort of, like, how parenting has sort of gone off the rails. Anyway, um, in that review, she was like, well, you know, she's tossing around these, like, big academic concepts and mentioning Judith Butler, and it's so alienating. But then at the end of the review, she was like, why isn't this more rigorous? And I was like, that's, that's just... <laughs> <laughs> that is an odd take. Um, and that, is, that seems very contradictory to me. So it's, you know, I, I don't like, it, it wasn't a bad review. I was just sort of, I was just sort of irritated because I was like, you just contradicted yourself and that bothers me. And I want to point it out, but I'm going to look like an asshole. So I'm just going to keep quiet. Well, you picked the two, two of the three that I, that I had in mind. Uh, uh, and what was the third? The third one is, you know, because I just Googled. I don't know if I don't. I personally don't know feminist current. Oh yeah. But I'm gonna read oh, you a well. sentence. She writes, "We were not feminists once. We are feminists. We have been all along. The sisterhood is powerful, which Shirley Zeisler would know if she, if only she had joined us." Megan Murphy. Right. So Megan Murphy is a Canadian feminist who takes an extremely hard line against the kind of branch of liberal feminism that is for supporting things like sex work and pornography and things like that. So she is much more in the classic tradition of a radical feminist. My mother's my mother's generation. Right. But but no, she's young. She's I believe she's younger than me. So, and this is a really rich thing is that she has accused me of plagiarizing her and she did this via Twitter and she has, um, kind of a, I mean, feminist current, you know, it definitely has a, like a pretty hardcore readership, but yeah, Megan Murphy has definitely, uh, been kind of, uh, she's an antagonist. She comes after people. And she came after me because she was like, I've been writing about this stuff for, you know, three years. And I was like, and I've been writing about this stuff for 20 years. So what's your point? Like, maybe you plagiarized me, which, of course, I don't believe. And I would never say that. But it was really interesting that she went straight to that place of you wrote a book that, you know, about things that I also have been exploring. But you have no right to say them because you don't believe the exact same things I do. So it was a very sort of no true Scotsman situation. Yeah, like a real feminist wouldn't do this or a real feminist wouldn't believe this or, you know, Andy would know this if she was a real feminist like me. So she's wanting you to be more hardline. Yeah, she wants me to be more hardline. You know, I think she feels, and I I don't think she feels this, I know she feels this um, because we, you know, it sort of came out in the Twitter conversations where she was accusing me of, of stealing from her. She feels like she has been 
really scapegoated within contemporary feminism for holding these very old school ideas um, that sex work can never be feminist, uh, that pornography is always uh, an evil. And so, yeah, she, she sort of feels like she has been marginalized and demonized for thinking these things while someone like me gets to when it comes down to, I'm not, I'm not sure what the beef is, but no, yeah. it, but it also has to do with, with, you know, attention and, and legends and people like uh, Catherine McKinnon and Andrea Jorkin and names that, that the young people aren't learning now. Right. I mean, the high school students I work with are learning Beyonce and maybe Andy Zeisler mm-hmm. if their teacher gives them a book or an article to read. Yeah, I mean, it, there definitely are these, you know, there definitely is a way of thinking within feminism that, you know, and and the way that um, discourse plays out over social media and in these sort of short sound bites and, and think pieces where I think it probably can feel very scary to voice an idea that is at odds with mainstream thinking. And one of the people I interviewed for the book was, you know, a legendary second wave feminist, Susan Brown Miller, who wrote Against Our Will, which is the, you know, a landmark text uh, about rape and rape culture and sort of understanding it. And she's amazing. She's a, you know, she's a fantastic writer. She's, you know, a really, a really amazing thinker, but her, opinions and her feelings about things like transgender rights is very much still mired in a kind of 60s mindset where, you know, things are still, things are still pretty binary. And so I remember interviewing her and and feeling like, you know, kind of a sense of bitterness that, you know, because she still held these unpopular views, the rest of her work was sort of being discounted by a new generation of feminists. That was sort of like a throwing the baby out with the bathwater kind of thing. And I, you know, and I, and I, I did wonder like, well, if I, you know, if I quote her extensively, um, is that going to invalidate a lot of other stuff I've written? Cause people are going to be like, Oh, well she, you know, she quoted that old bigot, Susan Brown Miller. And I didn't want either of us to be in that position so yeah, it's it's a uh, it's like a dicey <laughs> it's a dicey place. If I if I, this this may not be fair, but to an extent, the book feels that that there's a bit of that <clears throat> you as a fe- how how should I put this that in a kind of for want of a better word is this is too harsh a word but resentment of Emma Watson. Beyonce and Miss Piggy say <laughs> um, that your feminism is, feels like it's been left behind and co-opted. Yours that I would say it's more of a socialist versus capitalist feminism is the way after reading the book is the way I thought about it. Yeah, that's definitely true. Yeah. And I think it is one of those sort of, you know, it's not even cyclical. It's just sort of the trajectory of each generation of feminists sort of defining themselves uh, in some ways against the generation that came before. And, you know, I I think the the canon, for lack of a better word, of feminist writing has become far less straightforward 
um, in the internet age because we're, you know, things are presented in a completely, it's, it's, there's no real sense of a straight line from one text to another text chronologically. Everything's sort of out there all mixed up together. So people are sort of pulling threads from different sources and not necessarily thinking, yeah, exactly. Um, and people look for quick, <laughs> I remember what you're talking about, uh, your pet peeve. I was listening to a video the other day, your pet peeve of the word long form. Uh-huh. Yeah. People are looking for short, quick bites to grab onto. Yeah. This is what a feminist looks like. Right. And they don't want to read a book. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I, I think, yeah, the, the the resentment I do have, and I, I think that's, it's actually, it's not a terrible word. It might not be the most accurate word, but yeah, maybe it's more like I'm sort of <laughs> indignant or like righteously indignant about it is that sense of um, a historicality where people aren't really understanding that none of this is new, the co-optation, the inter-movement um, beefs, the trashing of other feminists, like none of this is new. And, you know, I think it's really important, especially in terms of like uh, talking about ongoing issues. I do really think it's important to recognize that there's a historical thread through all of this. And a lot of it does have to do with the kind of tension between socialism and capitalism. And so, you know, a big part of what I was thinking when I wrote this book was like, there does need to be a sense of history, which is not to say that, like, I am the person to write that history. There can be more than, you know, there should be multiple voices writing that history. But the point is to really acknowledge that in the case of celebrity feminism, you know, people like Beyonce and Emma Watson are saying things that various feminists have been saying, you know, for literally decades and they're being treated like they came up with those ideas. And so, you know, I do think it's important to, you know, to be able to source things, to be able to contextualize them, to be able to understand that, yeah, everything that we talk about as feminists has um, a precedent in history and has been grappled with and has been attempts and attempts to, to resolve them and they haven't been resolved. So, yeah, uh, yeah, definitely whatever sort of resentment I have is, is really about the prospect of, of that kind of being lost. Yeah. And I, you know, I read the book and agree with, with everything you're saying in it. And yet one of my many vocations is, uh, I work at a prep school in the evenings. I have a dozen or so students. I see an hour a week. I'm an academic coach. I'm, I'm like a buddy and a tutor and a advisor. And what I've seen just in the five years I've been there is that, you know, especially with the, with Beyonce and Emma Watson, is that both boys and girls are more actually conscious, you know, in huge ways that, that I've already seen grow since when I was in high school. And for example, you know, Feminism was just, re, you know, it was just gross is the word to, to the, you know, to everyone, boys, girls, everyone. And so right. there is a lot of progress that, that comes out of famous people saying nice things or, or giving, just like Bernie Sanders giving the word socialism a positive connotation again. Yeah, exactly. The, the idea that like we can, we can normalize these things, we can sort of like scrub away at the layers of you know, negativity and, and just like 
improve improve the public image of uh, of words like socialism or, or words like feminism. And I, you know, I do think I do think that's happening. And I, you know, I I do think we we have to give credit where credits due to celebrities who have um, who've taken on the word as an identity. But yeah, I mean, I, I think we also need to to look at the fact that um, they're not doing so in a vacuum. Um, they're doing so for a variety of reasons, some of which may be very honorable, but some of which are also about convenience and optics. Mm-hmm. Uh, a couple of minutes back, uh, you said something about maybe I'm not the person to, to, I forget what it was, to reach a certain, but it kind of brings up something I, I usually bring up at the end of these conversations, but I'll, I'll bring it now, and that is that you don't seem similar to my, my friend Dan, who I interviewed last, interviewed, I try not to use that word. Uh, he doesn't seem particularly caught up in fame for himself. And you certainly seem much more mission driven than self ego driven. So who I read your book and I, I liked your book. I feel like more men should read books like yours and more teenagers should read books and books like yours. Who would your ideal audience be as a public figure and and how you know what is your your grandest dream of reaching them yeah i mean so i mean part of the part of the part of my job at bitch is um we have a campus program and uh so i i travel quite a bit every year to to speak on campus um on a lot of these issues uh to college students and like it's definitely become one of my favorite things about the work i do because I I don't <laughs> I don't consider myself uh, I don't consider myself like old, um, but I I'm definitely not like a young like I'm definitely not like a young feminist. I'm not necessarily uh, sure what uh, college students are concerned with as far as feminism and politics and things like that. So for me, it's it's really crucial and and really fun too to often, you know, besides actually giving a talk to like go out to dinner or go out for drinks um, with groups of students and, and sort of find out, um, and not in like an I'm interviewing you way, young children, but like in just the like casual way, like where are they seeing feminist consciousness or like the need for a feminist lens come up in their daily lives? And often it's just about campus life. We have you know, pe- people will will have different issues, and and often they're issues that mirror things that are going on on a larger scale. You know, things like uh, rape culture on campus, or a, a a culture where female students are you know assumed to be not as serious about their futures as male students, and things like that. Um, but often it is about pop culture and representation, and this feeling of whether it's okay to be a feminist and still do or like certain things. And one of the, one of the things that, you know, made me start thinking a lot about this book before I wrote it was this sense of feminism as something you kind of get as like a, like a badge or a byproduct of your consumption of pop culture one of the questions that I get asked a lot are variations like, are variations on a question like, uh, you know, can I do X and still be a feminist? 
for what if I consider myself a feminist, but I still like why. So to me, that's really interesting because it really is thinking about feminism as, as this kind of like static metric of quality rather than as something that is like a living, uh, evolving, ongoing, you know, ethic of living your life. Getting way off topic. <laughs> I've been thinking a lot about lately. Uh, I I was raised the pro-feminist child of a second wave feminist mom in the 70s and you know 80s. And I've remained that way all my life, more and less involved and active. And lately, I've been getting more interested in talking about it, but more feel more and more unable to because... I kind of feel, you know, a lot of time. I am a fifty-one-year-old man. I'm the I'm the ideal demographic of men who should shut up. <laughs> uh, and and I I grant that completely. And yet I'm a I'm fifty-one, and I'm only going to live so many years. And I like to talk. Right. And it's one of the big, <laughs> most important issues to me. Right. And a couple of times online, I've I've been wedged into the you know, especially younger women who I know just kind of sighing and leaving. A conversation with me because I'm I seem to be the term mansplaining is useful and I hope to talk to Rebecca Solnit about it who I know a little bit from back in San Francisco right but it's also stifling oh yeah yeah for sure because I it's hard to argue yeah yeah you can't really come back from that yeah yeah I I recently had a conversation with someone there are two things one is the did you post the uh Sarah Benincasa article last week. Yeah, yeah. I mean, along with like 200 yeah. other people who posted What was the it. title yeah, of it? Great. Uh, I, I don't uh, want to say it wrong. It was like, Why, why, why I Got Fat? Why I, I Got Fat. And yeah. I just, it was one of the best things I read in such a long time. Oh, yeah. And I posted it on Facebook and, you know, along with the, the million others of us. And one of the first comments I got was from a very well-intentioned male friend, you know, who, <laughs> who wrote, LOL, wonder how she knew it was a guy. <gasps> and, and it made me, and I, I didn't respond, but I deleted his comment because, dude, it doesn't matter if it was a guy. It is a guy. 99.999, it doesn't matter. And, and I, I didn't want to have that argument right then and there. But I felt like that was an example of, I, I don't know if it was passive aggressive or just kind of ignorant, but it made me furious, but it also made me think of times that I haven't not made the comment. A few weeks ago, a young woman I know in her 20s posted one of those memes that's just a, like, you know, a text on a, on a, on a, with a background. Uh, right. Something to the effect of, you know, if you can't just call my friend they, then you're a fascist. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I, as a you know, as a 20 year English teacher and somewhat of a grammarian, rankled at it and tried to discuss why I wish that they would come up with a third pronoun. Because I don't, it's plural is plural, you know, it's, you know. But I could have just shut up. Right. And I feel like a mission of mine might be to help men know when to shut up and when not to shut up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I mean, I, you know, I think everyone can benefit from knowing when to shut up for sure. But yeah, I mean, I, I think um, nine times out of 10, 
it's it's not women who are sort of chiming in um, with just incredibly uh, unnecessary opinions. And I'm not saying that I'm not saying they never do, but I, I do think there there is still this sense of like socialization where they're they're, they're I don't know yeah I mean women are are definitely more likely to feel like um, is my opinion needed in this conversation. It, is it, is this appropriate? And again, like, I think I, I feel like I need to sort of preface everything I say about men with not all men or just like put out like an APB, like just anything I say, just assume I'm not referring to all of you because that's still a thing you have to do. There is this real, there is this real sense of, uh, sometimes it feels like we have to be very, very protective of hurting men's feelings when talking about patriarchy as a system. And that's weird. And that certainly comes up in mansplaining conversations. And that certainly comes up in situations where we're like, you know, maybe let's listen to women about their own experiences instead of assuming um, that we know better than they do. I think part of the problem comes from greater awareness and acceptance of the term feminism than from when I was a kid in that men feel like, excuse me, uh, a lot of men feel like, I get it and I'm on your side, so why can't I <laughs> argue with you about it? Right, right. In ways, or, or yes, or I suppose with men, it does become, explain why you're not getting your thing. Right. Your own thing. Right. Uh, and and I just feel like there's got to be a way because I feel like there's even even starting with these high school students I work with, the young men, the boys, are better and better at, at being sensitive. But they're already, young men are already so mute. And it kind of makes them muter about talking about it and, and actually speaking up. And I don't think that's a good thing either. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think there definitely is that sense of like, um, I'm on your side. Uh, I'm just asking questions so here. So listen to me. Yeah. Right. But but there also is the whole thing of like, um, you know, I rarely see, and again, this is, you know, this is quite anecdotal, but I rarely see uh, women jumping in to be like, well, let me just play devil's advocate. And men do this a lot, particularly in conversations about women's lives, whether it's, you know, abortion or rape uh, or family, you know, paid family leave or whatever. Uh, there is a sense of like men have the luxury of playing devil's advocate of having what they believe to be very detached, rational conversations about things that they don't have experiential knowledge of. And I think women very rightly often feel like this is my life. This is not a rhetorical exercise. So I don't need you to play devil's advocate with something that is literally happening <laughs> to me and millions of other women. Like there is just a way in which uh, a lot of women have become really fed up with that because that's not new. I mean, people have been doing that for, for decades. Like, oh, let's have this very detached, rational argument where no one's emotions get involved because it's, you know, it's, it's very much abstract to us. Um, and it's only recently that women have had both the tools and, 
you know, more of a, a critical mass of inclination to be like, yeah, no, you don't actually get to do that. There's also the the factor that maybe rationality is overrated. <laughs> and maybe if we if we are talking in cliches, maybe men are more rational and have more facts that they're, you know, statistic and look because they like them better. Right. But that doesn't change the experience people are having. Right. Yeah. And that's something I think about a lot, too, is like particularly around very personal issues that are experienced um, in many ways, most prominently by women. There's often this sense of, oh, as a woman, you have way too much skin in the game to talk about this. It's very strange because it wouldn't happen in so many other instances. It's almost like, oh, uh, you've been raped. Well, you don't get to talk about rape because you know too much about it. You know, to me, it would, it's like, uh, or like you have too much of an agenda. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. Cause I was raped. <laughs> right. Or yeah. Or, or, you know, a million other things. And to me, it's sort of like NASA deciding that they can't send an actual rocket scientist to space because they just have too much skin in the game. And so they're like, well, we're going to send this person who has read a lot about space. I want to make clear that I'm not trying to act like I'm above being this guy. I just think that I'm more conscious of it than some men are. And I'd like to find a way to talk to, to other men about that. Switching back to, to being a public person talking about feminism. Do you ever wish Do you ever wish you could just not? You seem like every day you are on top of this and you are out there. Oh, there are two questions. One is, do you ever wish you could just stop being a public figure for a year or two because you have a responsibility now? And the other is, I notice that you're on Facebook where you can control who sees and not so much on Twitter, which I've been trying to do for this podcast. And it's a nasty little world out there. Oh, God, and yeah. Why, why Facebook versus Twitter? And, and do you ever wish you could just disappear for a year or two and maybe right now? No, no. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's funny because I um I think of myself as a a temperamentally um not shy, but I I'm like I'm definitely an introvert and I definitely need a lot of alone time and a lot of time to sort of recover from social interactions or or being out in the world. You know, like for every hour I'm out in public or speaking or socializing or networking. I need like three hours where I'm by myself silent. Do you do Facebook more than say Twitter to, to limit the amount of interaction with <laughs> your public that, that you have to do? Yeah. I mean, I, I like Facebook because I think of it as like, okay, this is where my friends are because I do to some extent control you know, who can, who can see my profile, who can interact with me. And, you know, I've stopped accepting friend requests from people I don't know in real life, for instance, um, or people I haven't like interacted with fairly extensively uh, online or through other means of communication. Um, so it does feel like, okay, this is like my, you know, this is my giant sort of coffee clutch. And it's not necessarily like these are all people who I agree with. This is an echo chamber, but it's more like these are people who I feel safe um, to some extent sharing my thoughts with where Twitter is much more performative. Um, it's much more like this is, this is, this is an exhausting public self that 
you know, I have to, that I have to be for like, you know, a few times a day and I like it, but it is, it's not, you know, it's not necessarily something I like relish. And like, if I, you know, if someone held a gun to my head, it was like, you need to give up one of your social media accounts, like Twitter would absolutely be the first to go. I, I sort of go through phases with Twitter. Like I'll have weeks where I don't tweet very much at all or where I'll mostly like retweet a few things. And then I'll have weeks when I'm feeling like maybe a little bit more gregarious or fired up about things or it's a particularly like fertile week for just like public, you know, bullshit in the world that people are talking about. Um, so I, I don't necessarily feel beholden to it. I don't necessarily feel like, you know, I'm not, I am not a Twitter personality. I'm not someone who is going to stop tweeting and people are going to be like, oh my God, where did she go? Like, that's not, that's not where I'm at. But I did get verified last week, which is very weird because all of a sudden, and I don't even know if this is true, but I feel like I'm reaching people I wasn't reaching before. Because of the verification? Maybe. I have no idea. Um, because, you know, with the, with, uh, when other people are verified, they, you know, when you're verified, you can choose to see tweets only from other verified people. It can be just, it can be very disheartening to someone who isn't a public figure uh, to, 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 to deal with that and to deal with, I mean, most people I know aren't on Twitter because they're, A, they're, 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 they're over the age of Twitter and they, uh, uh, it, it fills you with, with kind of a, jealousy and resentment of fame and famous people who get listened to and what, whereas you're there just to listen. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I can see that, but I, I think it's one of those things where like you really do have to keep in mind. And I remind myself of this all the time. Like everyone on Twitter <laughs> is in some way, big or small, hating themselves as they tweet and I truly believe that this is true. And I don't believe that everyone is like, oh, my God, I'm so full of loathing. Let me get on Twitter. But I do believe, yeah, I do believe that there, that there is something about it where it really attracts uh, a certain kind of person who, and I guess I'm not, I'm not talking about like Katy Perry. I'm not talking about like Justin Bieber. I'm not talking about people who are so famous that they're not even writing their own tweets. I'm talking about, you know, the, the possible like Twitter celebrities or the professionally funny people on Twitter or even the, the journalists. Like we are all to some degree hating ourselves for this need we have for Twitter and for validation. And that doesn't necessarily get better as you get more followers or get verified or whatever. It might not get worse. So to me, like keeping that in mind is, is really important. I will. I find that there are a lot of there's become a very ironic self-consciousness. I started following one person who led to others who are young, mostly women journalists in New York. Mm -hmm. And there's a very like openly like I'm so ironic and hate myself so much for doing this. And they say it. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah, and and I have to. I stopped following them because they they depress me. I want to say, oh, just quit Twitter for a year, yeah, and read some long form material. <laughs> it made me. It cracked me up when you talked about that in one interview as as a word you hate because I hadn't really thought about it. 
Yeah, exactly. Really? Like you hadn't, you hadn't thought about the word or you, you had thought about it and you liked it. Well, I wasn't on Twitter enough or on, on social media where I, I didn't see it that much to think that, oh, they mean something that's an actual piece of writing mm-hmm. until you said it. Now I'm seeing it every day. It's yeah. suddenly it's appearing everywhere. And I'm like, it's not long form. It's just something that's more than 140 <laughs> characters. Yeah. Yeah. And again, I get it. Like there is this, there is this need to, to, you know, to find things and, and categorize them. But that, I, I don't know why it just, it makes me, it just fills me with rage. I know that you are running out of time. Yeah. Is it 10? And it's, it's 1258. Okay. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I mean, at yeah, my time, yeah, no. it's, it's, it's funny. Yeah, I keep thinking yeah, of you as in San yeah. Francisco, even though you're not. Yeah, because I was for a long time. I get the time very confused when I talk to people on the West Coast. Well, there were there were a great number of things that you that you wrote in the book, and that I I'll probably mention when I in the uh, outro to this that I didn't get time to talk to you about. Um, but thanks, it, it's a I really enjoyed it, and I really enjoy keeping up with you on there and and everything that you you, you share. So I'm glad we got to talk. Oh, well, thanks. Yeah, thank you. This is um, this was really fun. For more about Andy Zeisler and links to the book, to her Times piece the other day, and other juicy tidbits, please go to 15minutesjamieberger.com. That's one five, the numerals, minutes, J-A-M-I-E-B-E-R-G-E-R.com. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at 15MinsJamieB. 15MinsJamieB. Of course, you can also look for us on Facebook. And you can even call the Fame Hotline and tell us your story at 872-215-6467. That number, once again, is 872-215-6467. Six four six seven. Please, pretty please, rate us, review us on iTunes, on Stitcher, wherever you listen to podcasts. It means a huge amount. So please and thank you. Huge thanks as ever to Ed Patnode for making me sound as pretty as possible, even with a cold. This is 15 Minutes. I'm Jamie Berger.